Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today, we're discussing Gregor Mendel, whose work with pea plants jump-started the entire field of genetics. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them and all of ParCast shows on your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. Well, if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review. And now, on to the life of Gregor Mendel. As a young child, Mendel hoped to one day achieve fame for his scientific discoveries. Sadly, his fellow scientist colleagues took little notice of him during his lifetime. It wasn't until 50 years after his death that scientists would uncover Mendel's importance as the founder of the burgeoning field of genetics. But before we explore the fortuitous rediscovery of Mendel's work, let's examine the life of this modest monk. Johann Mendel was born on July 22, 1822, and grew up on his parents' farm near the tiny village of Heinzendorf. His mother, Rosine, was the kind-hearted daughter of a gardener. Mendel's father, Anton, was a hard-working but dour farmer, worn down from years of back-breaking farm labor. He was diligent in his work, plowing the fields no matter how much pain he was in. In his rare free time, Anton liked to experiment with fruit tree grafts. This basically involved cutting a slit into the trunk of a tree and inserting the stem or bud of a different tree. Successful fruit tree grafts can produce a variety of favorable results. The fruit may be sweeter, hardier, or more consistent in size. Perhaps his father's love of experimenting with the offspring of fruit trees and his mother's knowledge of gardening helped inspire Mendel to eventually focus his line of scientific inquiry on the offspring of pea plants. Mendel's parents often worried about their son. He was frequently bedridden in childhood and, throughout life, overwhelmed by his own anxieties. Each time he took to his bed, his mother and two sisters fussed over him and brought meals to his bedroom. Mendel wasn't very close to his older sister, Veronica, but he and his younger sister, Theresia, shared a deep, affectionate bond. Both Theresia and Mendel were more similar to their gentle mother than their father in personality. 
But Mendel did possess Anton's inclination towards negativity and self-doubt. It's even possible that he may have inherited a genetic tendency towards depression from his father. According to Myrna Weissman, a professor of psychiatry at Columbia, you're three times more likely to be depressed if you have a parent who suffers from depression. And if your parent began to suffer from depression in his or her youth, then you're four to five times more likely to develop depression. But of course, this kind of diagnosis wasn't possible in Mendel's era, so we can't do much more than speculate on whether Mendel suffered from depression himself. As the family's only son, Mendel was expected to one day inherit the farm. But Mendel never displayed much interest in farm work. He was far more invested in his schooling. Mendel was bright and inquisitive as a young boy. He enjoyed classes at the local elementary school with his uncle. Mendel's family recognized his aptitude for academic learning and agreed to send the 11-year-old to a gymnasium, essentially a secondary school and high school. The gymnasium was in Tropau, a Czech city now known by the name Opava. It wasn't easy for Mendel's parents to pay his tuition. They were struggling farmers, not wealthy nobles or even financially successful middle-class merchants who could easily afford the school's fees. Still, they scraped together the funds to send their son to the gymnasium. This meant Mendel, the son of peasants, might actually have the chance to attend a university one day. Mendel devoted himself to his studies at the gymnasium, and he began to dream of one day achieving fame for his academic pursuits. As a teenager, Mendel wrote a poem about Johann Gutenberg, inventor of the printing press. In the poem, he hints at his own personal desire for glory. Quote, May the might of destiny grant me the supreme ecstasy of earthly joy, the highest goal of earthly ecstasy, that of seeing, when I arise from the tomb, my art thriving peacefully among those who are to come after me." End quote. If Mendel arose from his tomb right now, he might be pleased to see the degree of fame and recognition he achieved in the decades after his death. But unfortunately, Mendel had no way to foresee his future fame. Mendel's struggle with self-confidence began as early as his teens. It didn't help that he had it much harder than the other students at the gymnasium. His parents stopped paying his school fees by the time he reached his late teens. He had to fend for himself and pay for his own tuition, room, and board through tutoring gigs. He found it stressful to maintain good grades while also supporting himself. He also had the future to worry about. His father still expected him to take over the farm, and Mendel knew that a farmer's life wasn't for him. Eventually, his stress became too much for him to bear. In the summer of 1839, 17-year-old Mendel ran away from school and returned home to his family's farm. He crawled into his childhood bed and refused to leave his room. He lay in bed for months as his family grew increasingly concerned. His mother and 10-year-old sister, Teresia, brought him meals and tried their best to encourage him to leave his bedroom. After all, he wasn't suffering from a fever or any other obvious physical malady. He should have been able to at least help out around the farm. Mendel wouldn't or couldn't explain his inner torments to his family, but it was very poor timing for a nervous breakdown. A tree had fallen on his father a few months earlier, badly injuring him. Now, Anton was having trouble maintaining the farm, and he really needed Mendel's help. But Mendel couldn't bring himself to leave his bed. He lay there the entire summer. 
In the fall of 1839, he managed to pull himself together and go back to the gymnasium. He graduated in 1840 and began studying at the Philosophical Institute. This school was meant to be a stepping stone for students on their way to university. But Mendel was miserable at the Philosophical Institute. The school was in the Czech city of Olomouc. As a German speaker, Mendel struggled to speak Czech, the city's primary language. He still needed to support himself with tutoring, but his limited ability to speak Czech made him an unattractive teacher to Olomouc's Czech families. He wasn't able to find many tutoring gigs in the fall and winter of 1840. He could barely even afford to feed himself half the time. His anxiety and depressive tendencies started to get the better of him once again. By 1841, he had given up and dropped out of school. He went back home and returned to his childhood bed. The 19-year-old had been the family's academic prodigy, and it was likely humiliating for him to be reduced to such a state. Month after month, he worried about his future and his family's. What would happen if he never went back to school? How was he going to bear taking over the farm from his father? Luckily for Mendel, his two sisters were willing to help relieve him of his anxieties. His older sister Veronica and her husband Alois agreed to look after the family's farm. Mendel no longer had to worry about failing in his duties as eldest son. Mendel's 12-year-old sister, Theresia, took it upon herself to ease her brother's financial burden. She loaned him her dowry so he could afford to go back to the Philosophical Institute. The significance of her generosity here can't be understated. Theresia had no way of earning income for herself and would need that money in a few years to win over a future husband. This was an incredible sacrifice for her to make. With Theresia's help, Mendel went back to school in Olomouc. But two years later, in 1843, he was at the end of his rope. He was anxious once again about the future. Convinced he'd never be able to afford university, he wasn't sure what to do. But then his physics professor came up with an idea that would change the course of 21-year-old Mendel's life forever. He suggested that Mendel could affordably pursue his love for learning by becoming an Augustinian monk. The Augustinian monks were more intellectual than many of the other orders. They prioritized education and engaged in studying and teaching. And so in 1843, Mendel traveled to Brunn, Austria, and joined the St. Thomas Monastery. It was in the greenhouse of St. Thomas Monastery that Mendel would soon revolutionize humanity's understanding of reproduction and the nature of life itself. Time for a quick break. Now let's get back to the story. In 1843, Gregor Mendel, now in his early 20s, traveled to the thriving city of Brunn to join the St. Thomas Monastery and become a member of the Augustinian Order. Fortunately for Mendel, the Augustinian monks prized learning and academics. The monks were even responsible for instructing students in math at the local philosophical institute. Abbot Knapp, an intellectually curious man, took a particular shine to Mendel. He supported Mendel's scientific studies and gave him permission to use the monastery's greenhouse for experiments. Mendel spent the next five years studying for his ordination as a priest. He took classes at the Brunn Theological College every day, and he enjoyed life at the quiet monastery. St. Thomas was considered to have one of the best kitchens in all of Austria. 
Mendel indulged in multiple course meals, meat slathered in rose hip sauce, rich pastries and cream tarts, and coffee or wine. The meals were sumptuous and likely responsible for his subsequent weight gain over the years. Regardless, Mendel wasn't above making fun of others for being overweight. At one point in his early years at the monastery, Mendel earned the ire of Bishop Schafgoch by making fun of the bishop's weight to another novice when Schafgoch visited the monastery. The bishop overheard Mendel's hypocritical remarks, and he held a grudge against Mendel that lasted for years. Five years after he first entered the monastery, Mendel was ordained as a priest on August 6, 1847. He took the religious name Gregor and began using that instead of his first name. That's why Mendel is now remembered as Gregor Mendel instead of Johann Mendel. Unfortunately, Gregor Mendel quickly realized he didn't want to be a priest any more than he had wanted to be a farmer. His old anxieties rose up to choke him as he went about his priestly duties in the fall and winter of 1848. He was no good at easing the suffering of the gravely ill. He didn't have the words to comfort or soothe the grief of family members who had lost their loved ones. He dreaded the visits where he had to bestow last rites. But what was he to do? He had already chosen the life of a priest. He couldn't back out now, but he also couldn't stand to perform his required duties. It was an impossible situation. By early 1849, 26-year-old Mendel had another nervous breakdown. He threw himself into his bed and couldn't find the energy to get up for more than a month. There were no psychiatrists or therapists at this time who could have diagnosed or eased Mendel's mental distress. But Abbot Knapp was shrewd enough to recognize that Mendel's unhappiness was connected to his job as a priest. He wrote Bishop Schafgoch and requested permission for Mendel to switch his focus to teaching. He explained to the bishop that Mendel was an eager student, but he was a fairly terrible priest. He wrote that Mendel was, quote, much less fitted for work as a parish priest, the reason being that he is seized by an unconquerable timidity when he has to visit a sickbed or to see anyone ill or in pain. Indeed, this infirmity of his has made him dangerously ill." End quote. Even though Bishop Schafgoch disliked Mendel, he reluctantly agreed to let the young priest become a teacher instead in 1849. This was enough to rouse Mendel from his bed. He started his work as a teacher in the fall semester of 1849, teaching Greek and math to local high school students in the town of Znaim. For the first time in his life, 27-year-old Mendel finally felt at home. He was thrilled with his new career as a substitute teacher and was always enthusiastic in the classroom teaching math and science to his students. His self-confidence began to increase. He started to dream of getting full accreditation as a teacher, Perhaps this would be the legacy he left the world. In the spring of 1850, he decided to apply for certification in Vienna. The test had three stages. The first stage involved submitting written essays on different scientific topics to the board of examiners. If a prospect's essays were approved, he would then travel to Vienna to meet the examiners in person. When he arrived, there would be two more stages to the exam he would write an additional essay on a new scientific topic first. Then, he would participate in an oral examination. In May of 1850, Mendel sent the examiners his first two essays on geology and meteorology. And what did examiners think of these two essays written by the future founder of modern genetics? Not 
much. They were less than impressed with Mendel's essays. In particular, the examiner of his geology essay thought it was terribly written. Mendel was smart, but as we've already seen, an incredibly anxious young man. He tended to freeze up when taking tests. Nevertheless, the examiners agreed to let Mendel advance to the in-person test in Vienna. On August 1st, the examiners instructed Mendel by letter to come in for his certification exams later that August. Mendel eagerly packed up his bags and boarded a train to Vienna in mid-August. Half a day later, he arrived, ready to prove his worth. Unfortunately, Mendel didn't receive the second letter the examiner sent immediately after that first one. They decided that they wanted to delay Mendel's exam so they could all go on vacation in August. When Mendel arrived in Vienna, the examiners curtly told him to go home. But Mendel wasn't about to let them send him home like a misbehaving child. For once, the meek young man stood up for himself. He explained that he hadn't received the examiner's second letter. He wanted the chance to earn his certificate. It was a bold move and a risky one. Mendel had already earned the ire of the examiners by refusing to let them go on vacation. They could very well take their anger out on him by refusing to approve his certification. The odds were stacked against Mendel as he began the next stage of the exam on August 15, 1850. He needed to write a new essay on zoology. This was his chance to wow the examiners and compensate for his terrible geology and meteorology essays. But as usual, Mendel did not cope well under pressure. He choked on the zoology essay, scribbling out answers that made little sense. The zoology essay prompt asked Mendel to list a variety of animals and explain why they were useful. Mendel was expected to organize the animals by their Latin species names. But it was as though Mendel had forgotten every bit of science he had learned over the years. He didn't use any of the proper Latin names, and his descriptions of each animal were shockingly elementary. Uh, for example, he wrote that a cat was useful because it got rid of mice, and that an elephant was, quote, a splendid beast of burden. Needless to say, the examiners were appalled by his essay. Luckily, Mendel had one last chance to prove himself. There was still the oral exam. On August 16, 1850, Mendel walked into a Vienna classroom to complete his oral exam. It was an unmitigated disaster. The examiners peppered Mendel with physics questions. Paralyzed by anxiety, he found himself unable to answer them. The decision was unanimous. Mendel failed the exam. For someone like Mendel, who already struggled with self-doubt, this was a major blow to his self-confidence. Dispirited, the young man traveled back home to the St. Thomas Monastery. His dreams were in tatters. But there was a silver lining. Although the examiners were not impressed by Mendel's essays or oral exam, they could tell he had a passion for the sciences. One of the examiners named Kinnair suggested that what Mendel really needed was a higher level education. Mendel wanted to go to a university more than anything. It had been his goal since he was a young child. But he couldn't attend a university without special dispensation from Bishop Schafkoch. As you'll recall, that's the bishop who Mendel made fun of for his weight. Bishop Schafkoch hadn't forgotten about Mendel's joke, and he wasn't exactly inclined to grant Mendel's request. But Mendel had an ally on his side, Abbot Knapp. The abbot pleaded with the bishop to grant Mendel permission to attend Vienna University. 
It took a year, but Bishop Schaffgoch reluctantly agreed to the abbot's request in 1851, but on one condition. Mendel had to live a chaste, godly life while in the decadent city of Vienna. In other words, Mendel was supposed to spend his time outside of classes at one of Vienna's monasteries. Mendel's dream of attending university was finally within reach. But then it hit another snag. None of the monasteries could house Mendel for the semester. He had nowhere to stay. Abbot Knapp didn't want to give the bishop any excuses to cancel Mendel's studies, so he sent Mendel to Vienna in the fall of 1851 and instructed the young man to figure out his own living arrangements. Mendel spent the next several days in Vienna frantically searching for a place to stay. He didn't want to return home to St. Thomas once again as a failure. He finally found an apartment at 358 Lahnstrasse, near the Vienna River, but he had a new problem to contend with. It was now November 5th. Securing permission from the bishop and finding housing had taken so long that Mendel had missed the first month's worth of classes. He needed to get special permission to start at the university so late in the year. Nervously, Mendel went to the offices of Baumgartner, the Minister of Trade. He was the one who would decide Mendel's fate. Baumgartner was also one of Mendel's former examiners. He had already rejected Mendel's teaching certification. Mendel must have been terrified that Baumgartner would reject him once again and send him packing. But Mendel was in for a surprise. Baumgartner agreed to let Mendel start the university classes a month late. The first-rate education that Mendel received at Vienna University, surrounded by scientific geniuses, would soon equip him with the knowledge he needed to found the entire field of genetics. Let's relax for a moment and share something we love. Now let's get back to the story. On November 5, 1851, 29-year-old Gregor Mendel started classes at Vienna University. He quickly drew the attention of Professor Christian Doppler. If that name sounds familiar, it's probably because you've heard of the Doppler effect, a phenomenon observed and described by Doppler in 1842. The Doppler effect describes how sound waves become shorter or higher pitched as an object moves closer to you, and the waves become longer or lower pitched as the object moves away. We've all heard the Doppler effect in our daily lives. For example, take the sound of a lightsaber's buzz in the Star Wars movies. The pitch of the lightsaber's hum changes as the blade moves closer or further away from its target. Sound designer Ben Burt created the lightsaber's battle noises by playing the bass noise from a speaker and then moving a microphone back and forth. The change in distance created a natural change in frequency through the Doppler effect. Professor Doppler liked Mendel so much that he made the young man the equivalent of a TA, or teaching assistant, in the winter of 1851. Sadly, Mendel didn't get to learn from Doppler for long. The professor died the very next year in 1852. But he found another brilliant professor in Andreas von Ettingshausen, who instructed Mendel in the importance of mathematical organization. He also studied botany from Professor Franz Unger, who told him about previous experiments with the garden pea plant. Unger was trying to unlock the secrets of how plants pass down traits to future generations. Unger likely inspired Mendel to later experiment with pea plants himself. Mendel finished his studies in July of 1853 and took the train back to St. Thomas. He resumed his role as a teacher, 
but he was also eager to begin his experiments. He didn't start with pea plants, though. His first experiments were actually with mice. He bred albino mice with other types of mice in an experiment to learn about the color of the offspring's fur. But Bishop Schofkoch was horrified to learn that Mendel was doing experiments that revolved around breeding animals. The very idea that a priest was getting involved with sex of any kind, even if it was just mice, unnerved the antiquated bishop. He banned Mendel's mice breeding experiment, so Mendel decided to get around the bishop's squeamishness by breeding plants instead. As Mendel himself later put it, quote, the bishop did not understand that plants also have sex, end quote. Mendel began cultivating pea plants in July 1854. That same year, Abbot Knapp approved the construction of an even bigger greenhouse specifically for Mendel's experiments. Mendel needed a large greenhouse to grow as many pea plants as possible. He knew that the larger the sample size, the more accurate his experiments' results would be. Mendel wanted to experiment with the offspring of pea plants. But before he could create hybrids, he needed to make sure he had pea plants that produced identical offspring generation after generation. For example, he needed the green pea plants to always produce green pea plants, and he needed the yellow pea plants to always produce yellow pea plants. He bred the plants until these traits were consistent. As Mendel grew his pea plants, his confidence began to shoot up like the budding stalks. He was 34 now and a university-educated scientist. Maybe he should take another shot at qualifying for that teaching certification. In May 1856, Mendel went back to Vienna to once again take the oral exam. But Mendel's anxieties got the better of him once again. One question into the oral exam, Mendel fled the room. He failed by default. Mendel was so humiliated, he crawled into his bed at the monastery and refused to leave his room. His father and uncle visited Mendel at the monastery and managed to coax him out of bed. Mendel recovered a month later in June 1856. Around this time, he took on an additional job keeping records of the local weather and sending reports on his findings to Vienna. But Mendel's real focus at this point became his peas. By the late spring of 1856, he was ready to start creating his hybrid pea plant. Mendel started out by removing the male sexual reproductive stamens from the rows of peas that he wanted to pollinate. This allowed him to exert a higher level of control over his experiment and keep his pea plants from pollinating themselves, which would throw off his data. He carefully placed pollen from different types of pea plants on this first row of pea plants, then covered them with tiny caps to keep the fertilized plant safe. Then he sat back and waited for his hybrids to grow. The dominant scientific theory in Mendel's time was that children were a perfect 50-50 blend of their parents. Mendel suspected this wasn't the case. He had a feeling that certain traits were dominant and certain traits were recessive. We know now that a dominant gene is a gene that is always expressed, but a recessive gene is only expressed if a dominant gene isn't present. The classic example used to explain dominant versus recessive inheritance is blue eyes and brown eyes. Brown eye color is a dominant gene, and blue eye color is a recessive gene. If you inherit two brown-eyed genes from your parents, you will have brown eyes. And if you inherit two blue-eyed genes, then you'll have blue eyes. But if you inherit a brown-eyed gene from one parent and a blue-eyed gene from your other parent, then you will still have brown eyes. 
That's because the dominant brown-eyed gene hid the blue-eyed gene. But here's where things get interesting. That recessive blue-eyed gene can still be passed down to the next generation. So now, let's say you have two parents with brown eyes. But each parent actually has one brown-eyed gene and one blue-eyed gene. In other words, you could inherit either a blue-eyed gene or a brown-eyed gene from each parent. This means you have a 75% chance of ending up with brown eyes, but you have a 25% chance of inheriting two recessive blue-eyed genes, a 3 to 1 ratio. Mendel was the one who discovered this ratio. He didn't necessarily know that the traits he was studying were genes per se, but he did have a strong suspicion that certain expressed traits were dominant or recessive. In order to test his theory, Mendel bred the pea plant hybrids to study seven specific traits. Some of these traits included plant height, seed shape, and seed color. By the fall of 1856, Mendel was figuring out which traits in the pea plants were dominant and which were recessive. And as Mendel grew generation after generation of hybrids, he started to notice the three-to-one mathematical ratio of dominant versus recessive traits. As Mendel cultivated his pea plants, he continued to enjoy teaching science and math to his students. In 1862, he even went on a trip to England with several other members of the monastery for the London Exhibitions Technology Fair. For someone who had spent most of his life in a quiet monastery, he may have found the fair's sights and sounds both thrilling and a bit overwhelming. Mendel continued to grow peas for several years until 1863. At this point, he was confident in his findings and ready to present them to the world. He spent the next two years writing out an explanation of his experiments for the local scientific community. And on February 8, 1865, he presented his findings about dominant and recessive traits to 40 scientists at the Realschule, where he normally taught science to his students. But when Mendel read his paper to the scientists, he did not get the applause he was hoping for. The scientists were confused, unable to really process Mendel's ideas on inheritance. None of them even asked any questions. After reading the lecture, Mendel had it published in 1866. He then sent copies of it out to many of the most preeminent scientists of his era. He was hoping to finally achieve that recognition and glory he had been working for since he was a boy. He waited expectantly for the enthusiastic responses to his research to come flooding in. Instead, the scientific community completely ignored him. He only received one response on February 27, 1867, from a well-known scientist named Nageli. But Nageli didn't agree with or understand Mendel's findings. He couldn't even follow Mendel's explanation of recessive traits. Mendel must have been crestfallen, but he soon had another job to keep him busy. On March 30, 1868, Mendel was elected as St. Thomas's abbot after Abbot Knapp's death. The politics of this position soon occupied almost all of his time, and in 1874, Mendel became embroiled in a tax dispute with the city. He spent the last several years of his life fighting a tax on the monastery, and his stubborn tax war cost him almost all of his allies outside the church. Still, he remained close to his younger sister, Theresia's sons, and enjoyed playing chess with them. He never forgot Teresia's generous gift to him all those years ago, and he strove to repay her by watching over her children. But he was growing frail, his eyesight fading. His kidneys began to fail, and he swelled up with fluid. On January 6, 1884, 
61-year-old Gregor Mendel passed away in his monastery bedroom. For the next 50 years, few, aside from his family members and former students, remembered the quiet, diligent monk. But on May 8, 1900, a British scientist named William Bateson made an amazing discovery. He noticed that three different men, a Dutch scientist named Hugo de Vries, a German scientist named Karl Korens, and an Austrian scientist named Erich von schermach seisenig had almost simultaneously cited an obscure monk named Gregor Mendel in their own papers on plant heredity. So he decided to read Mendel's paper. He quickly realized that Mendel had been the first to uncover what Bateson was now studying himself, genetic inheritance. Bateson became Mendel's biggest champion and fought to make sure that Mendel received recognition as the founder of genetics. It's mostly thanks to Bateson that we now know Mendel's name today. The monk who spent his life struggling with self-doubt, who failed his teaching certification exam twice, who was ignored his entire life by the scientific community, would likely be proud to learn that he is now remembered as one of the most important scientists in human history. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Historical Figures. A new episode releases every other Wednesday. You can listen to all of ParCast's shows on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Shannon Deep and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.